So, I used to do other stuff before I work here, as some of you will know. Most recently, my job was to uh, set up a new software development center here in Scotland for Amazon.com to save some of the really clever programmers our Scottish universities are churning out from financial services. So, if there are any of you here who work in software and financial services, I have one word for you this morning. Sorry. I was meant to hire them to work in the far more exciting business of running a glorified shopping website Um, and and to set them free to use their great skills and their gifts to make pots of cash for the company. It didn't quite work out that way at first. Uh, I remember very clearly one Christmas, uh, shortly into this new process, the Christmas holiday started with a a deadly serious conversation with my boss back in the US. And uh, it had been 18 months pretty much by this stage. We had hired a bunch of people. Uh, We we had a big pile of computers stacked away somewhere in a cupboard. We had spent a whole lot of money, but we hadn't actually accomplished very much. Hardly anything at all, really. We delivered pretty much no value. And it wasn't okay. Things needed to change. Things needed to change quickly. That whole making no money thing really needed to change quickly. It was, it was a very hard conversation. And I can remember it, it really struck me. It set me back. It, it, it troubled me for some time. I wasn't used to not succeeding. And yet here I was. I was deep into the biggest project I'd ever taken on. And it really was looking a bit like a failure. Sometimes we want to take hard moments like this in our lives. We want to take times where we fail and where things have gone wrong. We want to kind of airbrush them out of our past. We want to pretend they never happened to us. We want to erase them. But so often times like this are moments when we learn critical lessons. It was a really important learning experience for me. The lessons I learned there will stay with me forever. Today we're going to look at a painful learning experience the disciples had, Jesus' disciples. We're carrying on our journey. If you've been with us in a while, we've been working through Matthew's biography of Jesus, Matthew's gospel, and we're just carrying on that journey. Now, if you're one of those who's ever had questions about the authenticity of what we read in the Bible, we read in these biographies of Jesus, these gospels, then what we're going to read this morning should give you some calls to question that. If if these are just made up after the fact, okay, these are just fabricated things made up, why would somebody make up a story like this? Why would somebody make up a story that paints these disciples, these key leaders in the early church as such failures? Why would they do that? Why would they undermine the leadership in the church? So if you have questions about the authenticity of these things... It's worth wondering about that as we read this section this morning. So let's read together from Matthew chapter 17. If you've got one of these red ones, it's on page 984. That's Matthew chapter 17, page 984. Now, last week, if you were with us, Jesus' inner circle were up a mountain with him. Amazing things happening. And they've just come down from their mountaintop experience. Page 984. I'm going to start reading in verse 14. 
when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out from the boy and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. That's where we're going to stop for today. Well, the disciples have failed, haven't they? The disciples have failed here. There's, there's no nice way to put it. They've completely failed. The moment Jesus and his inner circle get back down the mountain... They run into this crowd that has been trailing Jesus as he's been going around the countryside ministering to different people. And one man rushes to the front. He makes this impassioned plea for help. He, he falls on his knees. He pleads for his son. And then he looks over at the disciples disdainfully and he says, I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. These disciples, Jesus, they're worthless. They don't do what it says on the tin. They can't heal. They can't help me. They don't have any power. The disciples haven't been able to do what the man asked of them. They failed. As we, as we find out a bit later, they failed because they are they're doing the, rob, the, the, the job wrong. Why, why couldn't we do this, Jesus? They asked later. Why couldn't we drive it out? Because you have so little faith. Jesus explains. They're obviously trying to drive it out without faith. They've forgotten their total powerlessness in this spiritual, in this supernatural realm. Now we have to talk about the supernatural a bit here. In our day, you might think the world at large is pretty much agreed there's no such thing as demons. The old-fashioned ideas of the supernatural, well, they were the sorts of things we invented to fill in the gaps. But now as our knowledge and our understanding has grown and these gaps shrink, well, there's less and less need for these old-fashioned ideas with our, with our science. Well, this idea of the supernatural, that's just going to be fading away. Oddly enough, it's really not. It's really not. Uh, an article this week in the newspapers reported the findings of a new UK study. It said 82% of Britons believed in the supernatural. 82%. Four in five. 
It said 68% thought they had experienced some sort of supernatural event directly. 68%. Only 18% said they didn't believe or weren't sure about the supernatural. If, if some basic grasp of science is enough to put this whole supernatural thing aside, then we've got some serious education problems in this country, don't we? We need to be careful not to underestimate the supernatural. It's very real. Uh, most people in the world, most people even in the West are very willing to admit this, perhaps not in public, perhaps not in conversation with you, but really... Deep down, that's what they're thinking. Speaking to a crowd like this in a church, I expect, uh, I expect many of you might agree with me that it's all real. But sometimes, even if we agree it's real, we can keep this supernatural more in the realm of the theoretical than the practical. We can think, in principle, yeah, absolutely. I believe there's other stuff going on. I believe there are things I can't see. Powers, I can't see at work in this world. But we can think, in practice... We live as if, really, there's nothing going on. In practice, we live as if this is only really the case in biblical times or in faraway places, the sort of places seas off to visit. That it's very unlikely to have any real impact on us today in our modern Western world. C.S. Lewis has helpful words on this. Here's what he says. He says, there are, there are two equal and opposite errors people can fall into about the devils. He says, one is to disbelieve in their existence the other is to believe and feel an unhealthy interest they themselves he says they're equally pleased with both errors so we need to be really careful not to ignore or underestimate the supernatural it's very real very relevant here and now it is a part of our lives even here in the educated west but it's quite outside of our power it's it's quite beyond us. The, the physical world all around us, we have a degree of power in this physical world, right? I can, I can push things. I can move them. Probably if I tried really hard, I could make this pulpit slightly taller so I didn't feel so strange and far away from my notes this morning. Um, we can hammer nails into this real world, or at least into, into most of it. We have a degree of power, but today's reading shows us the supernatural world is quite outside of our power. Uh, the disciples didn't, you know, get partway through exercising this demon. They didn't get it partway out. They didn't half deliver the boy. They achieved nothing whatsoever. They couldn't shift it one inch. They had no power. And yet Jesus deals with the issue quickly and simply, doesn't he? There's no, there's no movie-style kind of supernatural wrestling going on. There's no long, drawn-out battle of words to see here there's no competition with calmness with a word in just a moment it's done with Jesus the disciples couldn't shift it and Jesus tells them that's because of their lack of faith and I want to take a moment to look closer at how Jesus responds Jesus on, on hearing of the disciples failure is upset with them at least that's how it seems from his first words what he says to them? He says, unbelieving and perverse generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? In verse 17. 
Uh, in the original language, he, he uses a form of exclamation that's extremely rare on the lips of Jesus. Only one other place in the whole Gospel of Matthew does he use such emphatic language. And there he uses it positively. This is the only time you find Jesus speaking so sharply. The word translated perverse here, he says unbelieving and perverse generation. It's quite hard to capture the sense of that in English. This isn't uh, immorality that's in view here. That isn't um, depravity. Unbelieving and perverse, he means obstinately unbelieving, willingly, deliberately unbelieving. That's what he means. And, and it's not the man who's come to Jesus that he's upset with. He doesn't talk about, you know, you, you, you man with your boy, I'm so frustrated with you. The whole sentence is plural. How long will I be with you, plural? You, plural, unbelieving generation. Now, it might look like he's having a, a, a general rant about the state of the people he's been sent to, about you know, the state of this, uh, this contemporary population in the land of Israel. But when you think about it, when you think about what's behind the problem Jesus has run into, the words are aimed rather closer to home. You see, the problem that confronts Jesus when he comes down the mountain is the demon hasn't been cast out, hasn't been driven out and the boy couldn't be healed not because of a lack of faith in the father not because of a a, a lack of faith in the, the the generation at large scattered around them but in that private conversation with his disciples later we find out this problem's here the demon can't be driven out because of a lack of faith in the disciples that's what's at the root of the problem here. That's, that's what's gone wrong. That's what's led to this issue. And that is what Jesus is frustrated with. The disciples are powerless where they ought to be powerful. And they're powerless because they lack faith. Imagine with me for a minute being with the disciples out there on the field, Okay. Imagine that you are part of that band. Now, Jesus is headed off up the mountain uh, with an inner core with his close disciples. And you're there on the ground with the other disciples. And uh, you're off doing your work. You're off trying to help people. Now, put yourself into their shoes when they arrive at this man's house. They see his pain. He loves his son. And his son keeps getting hurt. He gets getting hurt because of this, this power that is working inside him and against him. They want to help him, right? They want to help him. They've seen Jesus do this plenty of times before. You know it's your job, okay? You know it's your role. You know how it's done. You've seen Jesus do it. And then you just can't shift it. How does that feel? Are there moments in your life where you felt like that, where you feel like you, you, you know what it is you're meant to be doing, You know what it is you're meant to be doing. You know what it is God has put before you to do, and yet you just can't do it. You're sinking. You're you're out of your depth, okay? You're out of your depth. You think, maybe if it was smaller, I could handle it, but this is a big problem. I can't handle this problem. Maybe some of you are facing that even today. I have good news for you. 
I have good news for you. When you find yourself in that spot, you find yourself powerless to accomplish what it is you believe is meant to be done. Here's the good news. You are powerless. You actually are in in so many dimensions, so many situations in the face of so many challenges that confront us day to day. In the pursuit of God's will for your life, in the pursuit of what he wants you to do. We are powerless. When we, when we have that feeling of powerless, do you know what we've done? We've grasped reality as it actually is. We've finally got what's going on and how it's happening. We are powerless. Our problem is we think it should be otherwise. Our problem is we think it should be otherwise. It seems like, seems like when the disciples find themselves here, what do they do? Well, they must have given up. Sorry, mate. Can't help you with this one. Try somebody else. Maybe they're thinking they're going to have better luck with the next exorcism. So they head out the door and along the road. Maybe they're thinking they've got to recharge their batteries in the presence of Jesus. They've got to watch more closely what he does with his hands. Maybe they can capture what he does with his hands. Maybe it's a different set of words that they're looking to need. When we find ourselves out of our depth pursuing God's calling... When we recognize we're powerless, we need to realize we're seeing life as it really is. We're seeing clearly at last. We've got it. We are powerless. Think anything else is to misunderstand the the nature of the world. We're, We're quite powerless in ourselves. Back to the story, okay? The disciples find themselves powerless. Asking Jesus to explain, he pins it to their lack of faith. He says, you're powerless because you have so little faith. And so little faith is terrifyingly close to no faith at all. Since Jesus tells them that if they did have faith, even faith as tiny as a mustard seed. It's a metaphor he uses for this tiniest, most infinitesimal things. He said, if you had even that much faith, you could uproot the mountain I was on last week. That faith stuff is potent, isn't it? A tiny, tiny amount of faith. Uproot a mountain, that's power. Power you measure in terms of volcano eruptions, in terms of tectonic plate movements, the sort of power that can take a mountain and throw it into the sea. That's gigantic power. Can you imagine what it'd be like for a minute to pick up one of our mountains, one of our... Slightly less impressive, slightly more modest Scottish mountains. Maybe pick up Arthur's seat and chuck it into the fourth. Can you imagine what sort of power that is? Sense for the scope, the scale of that. What a contrast. The disciples are unable to compel one evil spirit out of one person. Yet Jesus says faith, even this tiniest, tiniest piece of faith, is enough to uproot mountains. Faith is so potent. Faith's the key. How could you, how could I have faith? How could we have even this tiny, tiny lump of faith? Well, let's start at the beginning, shall we? What exactly is faith? What is faith in the first place? Um, Time to hit the well-thumbed dictionary. The Oxford Dictionary says this. It says, faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. 
complete trust or confidence. And it goes on to say, in a religious setting, it's strong belief in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual conviction rather than proof. Don't trust the Oxford Dictionary. I asked dictionary.com. It says, faith is strong or unshakable belief in something, especially without proof or evidence. Do you notice that, that common thread there? Do you notice that in those definitions of faith, they set faith in opposition to truth. Faith is this thing you have when you don't have evidence. And when you do have evidence, you've got this truth and proof stuff over here. It's where you get phrases like the, the leap of faith. It's where you get phrases like blind faith. The sense we get is we've got, we've got truth, we've got proof, we've got rational fact over here. And, and over here we've got fluffy faith. Soft, unconvincing, lacking evidence. Faith is almost kind of anti-reality in these definitions, isn't it? Some of the solid, rational, hard-nosed people, well, they want to look down on this idea of faith. It's something weaker minds need to get us through the week. A woolly, fuzzy way of getting around some of the difficulties in life. You can't handle the truth, they say to us. Where strong people like them really can. They, they live with just the facts, with just truth, with just proven real stuff. They have no need of this faith stuff at all. Well, of course, when they talk about just the facts, there is that surprisingly thorny problem of what exactly makes a fact. Facts are things that have been proved, they might say. Facts are things that have been proved. Then I'd have to ask, well, that's interesting. Is that a fact? And since by their own definition for it to be a fact, they'd have to prove it. And ah, it's awfully difficult to prove that sort of thing. Amusingly enough, they actually have to exercise faith to believe that proven things are facts. An epistemological quagmire for another day. Here's the point. Everyone, everyone, everyone in the world exercises faith all the time. We all exercise faith. There is no way to get through life without faith. The big question is, what are we putting our faith in? See, one thing is clear immediately. Faith is relational. Faith is relational. It's not some abstract thing. It's not like stuff you bottle and collect up. Faith is always faith in. It's always faith in. You're always believing in something else, someone else. Faith, faith the airplane's wings aren't going to fall off. Faith, a, a, a thousand tons of metal can cruise through the sky. Faith, Google will really not be evil. Um, faith in God. Faith in his power. Are you a person of faith? Do you have faith? Well, those are just meaningless questions. They're meaningless questions. The question is, what do you have faith in? Now, if you were to flip back through Matthew's gospel, it wouldn't take you long to get a grip on where he thinks powerful faith is anchored. Just a few chapters back, Matthew 15, we met the Canaanite woman. She astonishes Jesus with her great faith. Faith in him. Faith in his power. Back in Matthew 8, further back, we meet the centurion. Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this in the whole of Israel. What does he have? Faith in Jesus' power and authority. Again and again, the Matthew stories are faith in Jesus. The mat-bound paralytic's friends, what's their faith in? The woman subject to bleeding, the blind man, faith 
practical trust in the power of Jesus, the power of God to meet whatever the need is. That's the, the characteristic of the true people of God, not an optional extra. But we need to see that if the disciples did have faith, it would not make them powerful. Faith connects them to the one who's powerful. It doesn't make them powerful in and of themselves. It doesn't make them able to move mountains. It connects them to the one who is all-powerful, quite able, with just a word, to move Everest. Here's a way of picturing it for you. Faith is more about power lines than it is about batteries. Faith isn't about us being a repository of power. It's not about us storing up our batteries so that we can then go and operate independently. Faith is about recognizing we need to be plugged into work. That we're a, we're a conduit for God's power. We don't have any power that remains in us. There's no power in us. Apart from him, Jesus says we can do nothing. Not a little. He says nothing. But remaining in him, we bear great fruit. How much power is there in a battery? Well, if you've got a phone, if you've got a phone, a recent phone, you're going to have something like six watt hours in your phone battery. Six watt hours. It's nearly enough to run your phone through half a day until you have to plug it in. That's not very much power. That's not very much power. Um, Tesla, a whizzy high-tech company in the States, they've invented a battery that's designed to power an entire house. Giant thing. You need to stow it in your garage. Um, they're, they're a house-sized battery that's got 7.5 kilowatt hours. That's some power. That's a thousand times more power. Unfortunately, you can't get it in your pocket anymore. But what about power lines, okay? What about power lines? How much power is in a power line? Do you know it was surprisingly hard to find out? Surprisingly hard. Even pylonofthemonth.org could not tell me. I'm not kidding. After the service, pylon of the month, it's a, it's a great read. Um, each hour, in a serious power line, how much will you find? 6.4 gigawatts. 6.4 gigawatts. That's about a million times more power than this house battery. That's about a billion times more power than your phone. And you know what? It keeps on coming. 6.4 gigawatts. Enough to power a DeLorean. Can you connect to that illustration, okay? We are... We're not like batteries. We're not even like big batteries. We don't collect and serve back God's power. We're not a repository for it. We don't contain it. We don't find ourselves depleted at the end of a long week and need to come back to church to recharge. We don't have power in us at all. We're like power lines. We connect to God's power through faith, moment by moment. We don't just end up with a billion times more power that way. We end up with unlimited power, inexhaustible power, power that doesn't ever run dry. 
one more thing I want to say about today's passage. See all this talk of moving mountains. I wonder if anyone here has moved a mountain. Has anyone here actually moved a mountain? All right, mountain's pretty large. Has anyone moved a hillock? Grassy knoll. Has anyone moved a grassy knoll? Anyone ever heard of anyone who moved a mountain? Have you ever read a biography of anyone who moved a mountain? Have you even read a story in here of somebody who actually moved a mountain? No one. As far as we know, no one has ever actually moved a mountain. But Jesus isn't just being metaphorical here. When he says by faith a mountain can be moved, he's telling us the truth. A mountain can be moved. God is able to do whatever he wishes. And he can do that through us. There was one who moved the sea. Do you remember? Through Moses, he opened the sea. Faith really could move mountains, but it hasn't. Why not? Why hasn't faith moved mountains? I think Jesus' last words in today's passage show us. Do you see down there in verse 22, the end of the section we read, Jesus predicts again, what's going to happen to him next. He tells the disciples again what's coming. He says, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. He says, I'm going to be killed. This doesn't seem very connected to what we've been talking about at first glance, does it? But as I've been reflecting on the passage this week, I wonder if it is actually very connected. You see, Jesus has just shared, just shared with the disciples how nothing at all is impossible for them. And by extension, this applies to Jesus too, doesn't it? Nothing at all is impossible. If anyone has enough faith to move mountains, it's Jesus. But even with all that power at his fingertips, here he is, resolutely heading towards the cross. Why isn't he using this power? Why doesn't his faith enable him to move this mountain to to remove the cross altogether come to think of it why didn't the disciples having learned this amazing lesson about their power simply pick some mountains up and drop them on those who were coming to kill them if Jesus has access to all of God's infinite power how come he still goes to the cross if it is possible he'll pray in the garden of Gethsemane if it is possible may this cup be taken from me Jesus speaks in the garden full to the brim of faith. If it is possible, well, nothing is impossible for him. With his faith, just like he told the disciples, can't he? Here's the thing. God's faith connects us to God's power, but only in pursuit of God's purposes. Only in pursuit of God's purposes. There's no praying for a pink sheep for a bit of fun. John, one of Jesus' disciples who was here with him, lived through this experience, an eyewitness there in the garden as well. Saw him pray. John, in one of his letters you can find later on in the Bible, he writes this. He says, 
This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. I'm pretty sure he was reflecting on this event. We can ask anything and know that we have it through faith, just like Jesus said. Anything at all, if if we ask according to his will. Let me read that to you again. John says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. It's 1 John 5, 14, 15. We're created with a purpose, you see. We're created with good works for us to do in advance, specific things God has planned for us to do, set in front of us in our lives. God's limitless power is available to us by faith, enabling us to perform these things, these things completely beyond our own ability, sometimes remarkable, world-changing things. But he is not in the business of promoting party tricks. Nothing will be impossible for us. Nothing at all that God wants to do. Nothing he has prepared for us. Two pictures I want to leave you with today to help you remember what we've talked about. So whenever you find yourself feeling powerless, pursuing God's purposes, feeling overwhelmed uh, at a loss, feeling like things are beyond you, you can't find inside yourself the wisdom, uh, the power, the energy, the knowledge, the influence to get done what needs to be done, then let the picture of a flat phone come to mind. You are out of batteries. You're powerless. But don't stop there. Then bring the image of the power lines into your mind, no matter how much you dislike what they do to the view from the A9. Bring the picture of power lines to mind and remind yourself you are not a battery that needs charging. You do not have a limited quantity of power inside yourself. You have the unlimited power of God. On call. You're meant to be plugged in all the time. Remember your dependency on God. Stir up your faith. Stop lamenting your lack of power. Start praying and drawing on God's power. Make the connection moment by moment. Watch His power flow through you to accomplish all that He's planned. Amazing things. This week, go out and be people of faith. Don't live independent, live independence. Let's pray together.